Olá pessoal, tudo bem? Welcome to the Brazil Crypto Report podcast where we talk to the builders, entrepreneurs and influencers from across the Brazil crypto ecosystem. I'm your host Aaron Stanley and today I have not one but two special guests with me today. First off, I'd like to welcome Antonio Neto as a special co-host. Antonio is a veteran of the Brazil crypto world and he was actually the first guest I ever interviewed for this podcast uh, a little over a year ago back when he was the head of LATAM at FTX. Uh, so now he's back as a as a co-host. So Antonio, uh, welcome back to the show. Uh, thank you, Aaron. Thank you for having me and for this opportunity to talk more about the Brazilian market and be co-hosting this with you, with great guests and showing up what Brazil is up to in the crypto market. And then we also have Alex Nascimento, who uh, is joining us from Los Angeles, and he is a uh, professor at UCLA, Uh, he's also a partner at Seven Visions Digital, which is a, a fund out of Sao Paulo. And he's also the author of uh, an important book on security tokens. And uh, today we're going to be diving into some of his work and uh, talking about asset tokenization and security tokens and uh, kind of the, the real world assets, uh, RWA trend that is becoming more popular in the industry now uh, in Brazil and elsewhere. So we'll be diving into all that. Uh, Alex, welcome to the show. Hey, Aaron. Great seeing you. Great seeing you, Antonio. Thanks for having me. Always, always a pleasure to chat with you. And, uh, and I've been following the Brazilian Crypto Report. Actually, I told you this in the past. It's one of the very few newsletters that I actually read. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's such high quality and, you know, and I've been following for a while. So the listeners that are listening to the podcast but don't read the newsletter, I highly recommend you You read the newsletter. I actually sent it to one of the founders of Avalanche a couple of weeks ago. Pre you want to learn more about Brazil? I'm like, hold <laughs> the Brazilian crypto report. <laughs> Amazing. Well, hey, appreciate appreciate the recommendation as always and uh, and the compliment as well. So, so Alex, maybe to get started, uh, why don't you just tell us a bit about your kind of personal professional background and how you got into crypto? Kind of what was your uh, you know kind of red pill you know, rabbit hole moment? Yeah, no, it was a It, it was kind of like uh, serendipitous, right? I was uh, already teaching at UCLA and investing in tech startups. And this was around 2016. Um, and I met one of the early coders of the MetaMask and consequently Ethereum project. And the, he showed me a couple of ICOs and obviously ICOs back then weren't something you, you really needed a lot of technical expertise to do, you, you know, they, they were just booming. Um, consequently, in 2017, when Bitcoin went from 1,000 to 20,000, UCLA uh, showed interest in having a lab, uh, a research lab. And uh, I saw the opportunity. I saw that the technology was something groundbreaking and, and very revolutionary. So I took the opportunity to lead that lab, uh, which eventually showed to be, in my opinion, one of the most uh, interesting technologies to work with and to invest in. And we've been investing, then we shifted all our investments from startups only into digital assets. Uh, we've been doing that since 17. And then as Brazil rolled up to become, in my opinion, uh, the hottest market of today's um, time, we we're now fully focused in Brazil. I'm, I'm half Brazilian, so that helps speaking Portuguese in, in, in Brazil. Um, so at Seven Visions, we tokenize real world assets, uh, which we focused on uh, structured debt or precatórios, receivables um, in general, um, agricultural assets and environmental assets like carbon credits kind of going back to your putting your professor hat on here it seems like you have uh, several hats that you're 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 wearing simultaneously but putting on your professor hat so you've been teaching on this for for several years you've got sounds like you've got an online course that you're doing uh with ucla as well as some in-person physical courses um but I'd just be kind of curious as to what is it i mean you got in pretty early teaching or about 2016 2017 what's it been like what, what's been like the level of interest from students over those over that time frame and then also what has been the biggest challenge for you trying to teach this subject because this this seems like one of those so those topics where the, the students are always going to know more than the teacher <laughs> you know if you know what i mean so i would love your experience on that yeah no it's it's funny because um i think that the interest follows the bitcoin price 
we had early on, we started with one course and now a little bit of a shameless plug. Uh, UCLA is the, was probably like the third or more the fifth first university to have a, a actual a course on it. And, um, and then we, we got a lot of competition from MIT and Cornell and all these other ones that are online. So after the pandemic, we did a little bit of a pivot and now UCLA has a, a blockchain management certificate, uh, which is open to anyone in the world. You don't need to be a UCLA student uh, to take it. It's uh, four courses out of six courses you choose. And then you get a blockchain business management certificate with, uh, with the nice UCLA diploma on it. And it's fully online. Uh, so if anyone is interested, just Google UCLA blockchain. It will come up. Again, it's open to anyone in the world. And uh, so we've been doing that since 17, and we evolved into having a, a certificate, which is different than other universities. But the general thing was that for many different cycles of this of this journey, uh, the course got canceled because Bitcoin tanked to 3,000. Nobody was any more interested. And then when Bitcoin was 20,000, we had 60 people in the class. So there, there were different cycles over, over the years. Uh, now it's a lot more stable. Uh, there's a lot more competition out there. There's, there's a ranking, I think, on Cointelegraph about the top 20 universities that teach blockchain. Um, so I think that the, the cat has left the bag and, uh, and the content is out there. So if anyone is in our, in our listening group, uh, wants to know more, I think that there is a, it's a great opportunity to get a, a proper education because, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to look for a job in this space, I would like to hire someone that at least has the foundational uh, understanding of how the technology works. And if you have the foundations, you can understand where is the technology going. Yeah. 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 It's like anybody can learn just kind of like watching YouTube videos or, or, or whatever, but there's having that kind of like that foundation that's been sort of uh, battle tested with some academic rigor, I guess, uh, is, is is definitely important. Um, yeah, I would say I would also say that if we are going to actually get this mainstream, people need to understand how it works, because at the end of the day, if you look to the banking uh, system, most people don't know how money works and how everything is run. So like when we look into the future, well, blockchain is a database that will that will allow people to transact uh, tokenized assets um, and everything else on top of that. So like to start this, um, we need to actually like have this professional certifications around the world to allow people to get into the market. Even here in Brazil, some companies are trying to hire people, but they can't find knowledgeable workforce on these topics. Like at least they want, they need a certain depth level. People don't even know how to start. And it's a complex subject, right? Do you, you think you might know yeah. parts of it? Uh, and, and personally, it was a humbling experience for me when I started teaching because I knew from an investor perspective, what was it, Right. But I didn't have like the depth of the of the knowledge to be able to teach uh, people. Yeah. So the more you you research, uh, the more you know like the holes that you don't understand. And and I think that that's where potentially for people that want to get into this industry, uh, getting proper education, like Antonio said, is is a it's going to be very valuable uh, in your hiring process. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Pivoting here to um, some of your other work around the around asset tokenization and uh, security tokens specifically. So you've 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 written a book actually discussing security tokens and and kind of value proposition a few years ago. So you've been kind of on this um, on this circuit for some time now. I would love to kind of just get your kind of high level thinking to, just to start off here on what what do you see as the value proposition of security tokens, uh, asset tokens. Kind of how do they fit into the kind of the trajectory or the, like the life cycle of, of just crypto blockchain generally? I, like I, I always think back to 2718, there was I think the security tokens kind of had their first run in 2018 once like the SEC started in the US started kind of cracking down on ICOs and people realized you can't just issue your own coin on the Internet magically and just raise a bunch of money from random people uh, without any regulations or anything. 
Um, so people were looking at, well, all security tokens are kind of like an alternative to this, right? Uh, we're going to do this more of a regulated, transparent manner. And then, you know, come 2019 and 2020, I think the, the, the energy around tokens just generally shifted away from kind of crowdfunding or fundraising and more toward kind of governance and things of that nature with kind of the, the, the DeFi summer and, and more, you know, tokens are more, you had to kind of farm or air, farm these tokens or airdrop these tokens rather than buy them in a sale or, or something like that. So I think it seems like kind of the, like the energy has kind of shifted a little bit, but now we're at this point now where kind of the whole RWA real world asset trend is really coming back. Um, and you're seeing a lot of interest from, from different banks and from, um, some of the examples that you had highlighted earlier in your introduction and, um, realize, um, realizing that like, there's just, there's, this is, this is sort of inevitable, right? Like this is like all these assets are going to eventually have to be blockchain based. It's just a matter of time. Um, so anyway, we'd love to kind of get your high level thoughts on, on just what the value proposition is here and, uh, how, how this all kind of fits into like the life cycle of crypto and blockchain. Sure. And, uh, and I think that that's a great question because one of the things that for me is fascinating is that we work in a short historical industry, right? The industry in itself has what, five, six years. People claim, Oh, Bitcoin 12th year, 13th year. Bitcoin didn't really have any traction in 2008, 9, 10, 11, 12. Really. Yeah, the, only, the only industry was Silk Road back then, right? Exactly. <laughs> right. And, and before <laughs> Ethereum became popular, nobody really saw enterprise grade meaning for blockchain. Right. It was like you use the centralized ledger technology, and that was it. So I think. A little bit of historical context is what fascinates me about this journey, this short journey of an industry. So in 17, uh, for those of uh, uh, those that are listening to us that may remember this, people were just raising money like $400,000 on a PowerPoint with like an ERC-20 token that went nowhere. And in the early months of uh, 2018, uh, we were already having a course at UCLA in the early months of 2018, in my opinion, which is really what brought the first big crypto winter, the SEC came around and said, well, if you're going to issue uh, tokens, they have to be regulated because they are securities. And if you're issuing non-regulated securities, it's securities fraud. And securities fraud, for those that are not familiar with U.S. regulation, is a, is a, is a, it's a crime that doesn't uh, have a, uh, an expiration time. So so it's what we call in the U.S. law, they can come after you 50, 100 years from now, right? So it's, it's serious. Um, so the industry in the U.S. and the whole financial industry just became really in panic because, well, if you had exposure to any kind of ERC-20 or token issuance, you could be on the hook to go to jail for God knows when, right? The, the SEC could come after you. The DOJ could come after you like 20, 30 years down the road. Um, so it created this topic about, well, how can we issue a token that it's fully compliant with uh, the SEC, which is the CVM of the United States? And I always tell this kind of like little parenthesis where people that are not very familiar with like, U.S. regulatory framework system. Why is the SEC in the U.S. so important for the crypto world? We we have the Chinese market. We have the Korean market in 2018 and 19, which was like the biggest market. It's simple. is because 40% of all the trades that are done in institutional space in the world are done in the U.S. So every financial institution around the world doesn't want to get blocked from 40% of the market. So they all look at the SEC and say, what is the SEC doing, right? So it started that. And in, in that fashion, obviously, UCLA being a, a serious institution was like, well, we need to teach regulated token issuance to the students. We can't teach potentially securities fraud. Uh, so we started the research. There wasn't a lot of research at the time. And we developed the book, which is now going to uh, have a fourth edition, and we're planning to uh, issue it in Portuguese as well. So anyone out there that can help us issue a Brazilian uh, version of the book, we welcome the conversation. Um, and 
the U.S. has a very clear regulatory framework of what you need to do to issue a security token, which has less ambiguity than we're seeing in many other countries. But since we're talking about Brazil, uh, Brazil has been one of the most forward-thinking regulators, and I applaud the central bank and CVM for their work. And we're now seeing Brazil really just take off on a regulatory environment. Uh, so for founders and entrepreneurs that are in Brazil, highly, highly recommend that you think about issuing a real-world asset token because the market is so ready for it. Yeah, getting on that train, um, we've seen that the CVM issued um, token guidance, um, giving them a description, what are utility tokens, security tokens, and so on. Um, and some of these things uh, like carbon credits that are not considered securities and you said that you guys are working in environmental assets as well um, how do you how do you see these two regulations comparing i mean the brazilian regulation where we have some of the biggest uh, world assets production here for example soybeans uh, and the us uh, by the sec where most of this is traded so the liquidity comes from there they are distributing that th those types of products that are issued here in Brazil as well. But then we have the also the Asian market, for instance, that are also interested in, in investing in, in soybeans, for, for example. So how do you see this global uh, fragmentation on, on securities and um, how that impacts reward asset securitization, in your opinion? Yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a great question because uh, it's a very challenging kind of $1 billion question, right? Historically, you have two groups uh, in the crypto space, the people that are pro-regulation and the people that are, let's call them anarchists or, you know, not so fan of regulation. And the challenge is that a lot of the people in the crypto space believe that we should have this worldwide uh, securities humongous uh, regulatory framework, where whatever securities you would issue in Brazil could be traded in the U.S. or sold in Japan and so forth. But if you look historically, there has never been in traditional finance a regulatory framework that allows for cross-border security exchanges on, a, on what we in the crypto industry would call it an atomic swap, right? You need to have a um, you need to have an infrastructure on that jurisdiction to have access to that kind of security uh, avenue. And uh, you know, I have no disclaimer. I have no connection to Avenue, but the firm Avenue in Brazil does a great job at allowing Brazilians to have access to U.S. securities, right? Which is something relatively new in Brazil. So, I think that we're still far away from having some kind of regulatory framework that would allow you to do both. But one of the things that I'm very excited is that if you are a crypto investor, you can uh, onboard yourself into different exchanges, like for example, Mercado Bitcoin uh, or Foxbit. Uh, I know the founding teams there are really well, have no relationship with them aside from uh, market friendliness and, and uh, an appreciation for their work. Uh, if you're a foreign investor, you could have access to those to those exchanges and, and have your foreign investor account there. And then potentially you could have access to fractionalized bushes of soy or you can have access to carbon credits that are uh, that are going to be tokenized or receivables. We were talking, uh, Antonio and I were talking before we started the, the recording about this new token that just got issued in Brazil. It's yielding. Yeah. I think 27% annually, Yeah, 2.5 a month. Uh, exactly. If you can hedge the, the risk of the real, which is not that great, that it's not that big, uh, it's it's an incredible return. And just um, to get on that as well, it's interesting because that's one of the first projects that came out of the Brazilian 
uh, the Brazilian SEC, the CVM sandbox, and they are allowed now to issue do, do a, a sort of crowdfunding uh, via tokenization, right? So I think that opens up and democratizes the access to investment a lot, and then allows people to go to a secondary market and have liquidity on those on those assets that they've invested in. Um, but uh, uh, do you see, do you see, well, this market, I, I like to bring, I, I'd like to give some context. The market in Brazil for f financial access is still very small. Like if you compare the traditional finance market and crypto market, crypto has always been like 3x uh, ahead of uh, um, traditional markets. Back in 2018, we had about a million CPFs on the, the Brazilian stock exchange, about 4 million CPFs registered in, in crypto exchange. Now we are at 3 and 11 million respectively. So these uh, these people that are in crypto, most of them are for speculation. But once we bring in these real world assets that don't have the same volatility that um, crypto has, and so it doesn't appeal anymore for that uh, get rich quick thing, we start to have, well, a, a more structured or safe product for these people to to have access to. We've we've talked about we've talked about some some of the challenges and so on, but when we we look at like tokenized as tokenizing assets, where the liquidators custodians they won't have that same tokenization system. How how do you go about that? What I mean is, um, you have uh, tokenized assets on on let's say a soy production where you have at some point someone producing the soy then that gets to a warehouse and then you have the confirmation of that, that those assets getting there and everything is registered on the blockchain and then like you have the asset at the end that is traded but then how does that go to let's say the traditional finance you know like i, I would like to get your your point of view how we can bridge this uh, these words because we do see banks getting in on that, but then there is the inter interoperability um, and composability aspects of, of tokens. Uh, so I'd like to hear opinions on, on that. The, the ideal scenario is that we have our, everything on chain, right? And that's the true web 3.0 that everybody's talking about. But the reality is that we're still not there yet, right? This is like, if you look at these protocols, uh, we have great conversations with the team of Cello, uh, Camilo Rioja, who you, you guys probably know, and you should uh, definitely invite to, to the podcast because she knows a lot about the, the Brazilian uh, market and is doing great work with the government. Um, so registering all those steps, like you said, Antonio, about like what kind of a, a bush of soil is being collected, uh, where is it stored, and who's the custodian, and so forth should all be registered on chain, right? So that you could issue a token that has all that track record. Uh, but I think that we're a little bit before that yet because that's a, that's an issue we're all trying to solve and how to make those registrations on chain. I think we're now in this kind of phase of like web 2.5 where what we're tokenizing is that we're tokenizing PDFs and, and having them on a distributed ledger so people can check the validity of them, but I find it fascinating where we're right now, right? Because you have um, you have democratization of access to investments. If you look and you try to buy a contract, a future contract of soy uh, in Brazil, uh, uh, let alone not in you know the Chicago uh, CME or or any other of a commodities international exchange, which you as a Brazilian might not have access because you don't have the financial infrastructure to have an agent out there and you're just trying to buy it as, a, as an individual, uh, you're going to have to fork up some significant reais. It's, it, you can't buy like exposure to soy with like a hundred reais, right? Or, or you can't buy exposure to precatorios from the municipality of Sao Paulo with a hundred reais. Uh, you just don't get access to that kind of investment. As a shameless plug, we did a token on Mercado Bitcoin of uh, precatorials from Sao Paulo. 
that the mean or meaning like the most uh, common purchase of the token was 100 reais. And um, which previously, unless you were a fund and a fund manager or you wouldn't have access to any kind of high yield bearing asset like Percatorios. So I think that banks jumping on it and distributing it. Uh, today it came out the news. I don't know if you guys saw that Guide, which is one of the largest independent financial advisors firm in Brazil, is partnering with Mercado Bitcoin to bring assets to their to their pool of, uh, of clients. Uh, so I think that we're seeing more and more institutional payments and financial institutions in Brazil jumping on the crypto uh, bandwagon and jumping into the pool. And we're going to see a lot of Brazilians having access to crypto, uh, which is going to be amazing. I'm super excited with what's going to happen in Brazil in the next uh, 24 months. Do you see kind of going to back to this question of like the democratization and allowing people to buy in uh, into products that they would like otherwise never be able to buy into if they're not either an accredited investor or they're not like a fund manager or something? I mean, do you see that as really kind of the, the main value proposition uh, of this technology here? Because um, I guess when I when I look at security tokens, and I think, um, or or asset tokens more generally, I think one of the things that I think myself and I think probably other people will get tripped up on, where like it's like this doesn't really feel like anything new. It just kind of feels like we're we're just taking something that already exists and kind of putting like a new wrapper on it, essentially. Um, and, and there are some efficiency gains and things that you can get out of this. Um, but I think that democratization angle is really kind of, for me, that's like the key selling point of like what makes this really interesting. Um, so I'd like your thoughts on that. And then also, um, are there examples that you've come across of, of like new types of products that you could, that could be issued in this manner that perhaps are not feasible or don't like don't exist under kind of, you know, the TradFi uh, system? Yeah, no, for sure. I think that there's, Two aspects, right? Democratization is is the main kind of uh, benefit for everyone involved because then you bring more people to the table. And like Antonio said, you know, you, in Brazil, you have been having since I'm going to call it like the turn of the millennium, uh, an adoption of of financial products in general, right? Previously, we lived in a in a hyperinflation uh, environment where Brazilians didn't really have the chance to invest into anything because your money wasn't worth anything, right? It, it would go. I remember uh, I'm a, uh, my white hair tells how old I am, but I remember like when I was a child, my dad used to buy like the whole month of food because you were trying to beat inflation that the price would change by the end of the, the 30th day, right? So as, as we became a more stable economy, Brazilians became acquainted with financial products. Uh, and I think that in general, the average Brazilian doesn't have uh, a lot of access to financial products. The stuff you can get at Bradesco and Itaú, and it's really not like good yield-bearing products. Obviously, there's risk mitigations there, but you don't get like double the Seliki in a traditional product you can get at the bank, right? Unless you have significant money. So I think that democratization of it is one. Um, two is digitalization. So we have a, a, a population in Brazil that's every day younger and every day more digital. People don't want to go into banks. People don't want to talk to a bank manager. They want to go into an app, click, 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 buy uh, and manage their their stuff. And, and I think that, in general, you're going to allow people to have more literacy and, and have better lives, right? Because we're we're going to have to understand that we're going to grow older and outlive our parents by decades, right? You're you're not going to, people are going to stop dying at, at 80. People are going to go beyond 100. So you need financial products to carry on your life throughout those those later years. Uh, so I think that democratization of, of uh, assets is definitely one. Uh, and two for founders, right? So if you're a founder in Brazil in the 2000 to 2010, you'd be really lucky if you could get some VC to look at your deal. 
uh, there was just like not a VC economy because why would you put your money at risk if you could get like very high yield bearing, park your money and go to the beach, right? I'm from Rio. So you, uh, I was always fascinated because you, I would go to the, I would go to work on a Monday afternoon and the beach was packed. Why is the beach packed? Because people put their money in, in savings account and go to the beach. Why would you put your money at risk? So I think that, you know, asset tokenization really uh, brings a whole benefit for investors in Brazil that don't have access to good financial products and founders that need access to capital. I'd like to kind of double click on a topic we mentioned earlier, which was the, the CVM regulatory sandbox. And uh, there's a couple of companies that have been experimenting with with not only issuing tokens in that sandbox, but also kind of building like the secondary marketplaces for these sorts of things. And I guess that's one aspect that we haven't really talked about is, is just like the liquidity, kind of the secondary liquidity, you know, on equity essentially, or, or, but I would like to kind of get your thoughts on, on the effectiveness of in this particular sandbox program. I'm kind of of two minds on these sandboxes. I, I like the idea of providing a, you know, a safe space, so to speak, to accelerate in, uh, innovation and let people try some new things. On the other hand, it's like it's very rare. I, I honestly couldn't even give you a single example of a project that started in a sandbox and scaled up into like a significant thing. Uh, that's not that does not mean that they're they don't exist. I just can't name one. <laughs> if there is one, I don't know what it is. So I would just kind of like your thoughts on on that sandbox, uh, maybe like dilemma, I guess, and and just the overall like efficacy of, of what the TV is doing, in your opinion. Yeah, no, I think, like I said, I applaud uh, the central bank and I applaud the CVM. Those guys do a wonderful job, especially for uh, the CVM and the size of the team that they have, uh, which is, you know, they have to look at every security in, in Brazil. So all the way from Boi Gordo to Petrobras stocks to uh, crypto, right? So so uh, it, I think that they do a fantastic job. Um in general, I think a sandbox is necessary. The first sandbox that we had from a kind of serious market and serious economy was the Singaporean sandbox uh, back in 17. And, and Brazil really took a stance and took a leadership role in allowing these sandboxes, right? Uh, ETFs are, are another thing that in Brazil is a, is a leader in the crypto space. Um, I'm a big fan of sandboxes. I, you know, they, they obviously have their challenges, uh, but it allows innovation to happen and it allows a community to develop. So one of, one of the things that for me is fascinating about the Brazilian market is that more and more we have uh, serious players in Brazil, right? Every, every crypto meetup I go in Sao Paulo, there's more and more like, real companies uh, mixed with traditional finance, mixed with the guys from Itaú, uh, Bradesco. Itaú Itaú now has a full custodian team. Um, They hired Guto, who used to be the CEO of Crypto.com. That's serious adoption from an institutional player. And probably Itaú is one of the top 10 banks in the world, right? So so I think that that from a kind of a... um, a seed perspective where, where you put a seed and then that seed turns onto a small plant that turns into a tree. Uh, I'm very, I'm very prone uh, sandboxes and other regulatory frameworks because it allows people to put forward their projects and it allows institutional adoption. I don't think that without institutional adoption, uh, crypto will, will really have like the traction that it's having. Yeah, and I think I think with the the institutional adoption front is maybe maybe that's a good kind of way, area to say or a good point to segue here into just some of the the products that we've seen being released into the Brazil market um, by some of these uh, larger institutions like like Mercado Bitcoin you mentioned has been issuing uh, Leaky uh, and I believe Leaky is also I think Itaú actually owns a portion of them or they're yeah. an investor in Leaky right so obviously that's kind of signaling that commitment. Um, and uh, Antonio, we'd love to get some of your thoughts on this too. But we've seen a lot of these tokens that have been issued by Mercado Bitcoin and Leaky in the last, you know, I guess, you know, 12 to 18 months, everything from kind of, you know, receivables to precatory notes to, uh, you know, tokenizing uh, like football players and like future earnings and stuff like that, which is kind of fun. But we'd love to kind of get, you, you know, maybe your sense, Alex, 
uh, and Antonio as well. What's kind of the state of like the, the institutional, you know, kind of adoption of, of these tokens, um, both from an issuance perspective and also from like a, a demand perspective to, to own these things? The first thing that comes on is the interest of people on on the assets in itself. As Alex said, um, the interest in crypto is very correlated to its price. So some of the some of these assets that comes out and are tokenized, and we can go from um, the creator's economy to tokenizing real world assets. We will see demand based on two things. I would say access and price and speculation because even though we're going to have products that are more focused on fixed incomes or uh, that can have a coupon like a a, a note or something like that even though we're going to have those people will still have some interest on the more risky things in the sense of um, price sensitive but on the other hand we got to put on balance the risks of these um, types of assets. Because again, if you take just the speculation aspect or get-rich-quick aspect that the most of the Brazilian society has, and you can attribute that to many reasons, um, you get like, things like parameter schemes that we are now about to have a CPI, um, an investigative congress project to investigate the parameter schemes that happens in Brazil. So I think the demand is there, but there is a huge gap in knowledge and the reasons why people will will get on 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 these assets in itself. Um, and then I think uh, I would also like your your thoughts on this, Alex, because we already see some on-chain real-world assets, um, DeFi projects going on. So um, there's this DeFi, CeFi thing, um, also TradFi, if you, if you want to take that. How do you, how do you see these, this future of tokenization? We do have frameworks for some of these regulated things, but then we can also have the DeFi one. Yeah, no, I think it's going to be an ongoing conversation, right? Because I never worked or been in an industry that moves as fast as crypto. Maybe AI will do, but AI is so new that let's see how fast and uh, and forward it goes. DeFi and DeFi Summer was a really interesting experience. I think that more and more we're going to be seeing those uh, GMX uh, platforms of the world come around, and and they're going to be unstoppable, right? So. So for people that are really deep in crypto, uh, there is always going to be like the latest, greatest play around DeFi, which is essentially financial markets, right? That It's like you put money into something, they lend it to someone else, they reflush the money and they pay you a yield, right? This is just the basics of financial assets. But you can integrate those on chain and, and, uh, and really have a much more efficient a play on a global level. For for traditional finance, I think that what we're trying to solve and where's that kind of friction point for DeFi so that traditional players can enter DeFi, which Brazil is going to be a major, major player. Uh, and it's one of the conversations we continuously have with the guys at Faria Lima is like, how can a bank, how can an institutional player play in DeFi, right? And the challenge there is, your counterparty risk. Uh, for those who are not familiar with what that means, means like if I'm a bank and I'm trying to sell a bond or a high yield product to someone, I need to make sure that that person who's buying it is not Osama bin Laden or is in some terrorist kind of form, right? right. So you need to know who your counterparty uh, is. And the challenge with DeFi is that you don't know who that is because it's just a wallet on the other side of the world. So yeah. as we evolved into zero knowledge proof protocols or protocols that can validate identity of people without having to shed their identity to the whole world, I think that you're going to see an enormous adoption of DeFi. Because imagine if you're an institutional player in Brazil and you have access to Brazilian credit card debt, which is crazy in my opinion it's it should be outlawed because how much they charge credit cards yeah. to Brazilians it's just kind of like dude it's, it's almost robbing yeah. people. 
but that's yeah. another conversation, right? So if you could repackage that and offer it through uh, a, a traditional route to U.S. investors, yeah. it's it's a no-brainer. Yeah. Yeah, and and how is Seven Vision taking on that? Like, are you guys working to bridge this? Um, this gap. Um, what are you guys working on right now? Tell us a bit more about Seven Vision. Yeah, so uh, we continue working. Uh, traditionally, we we were a team that did a lot of investments in uh, special sits for uh, institutional players in the U.S. Uh, so having these exposures for institutional players in the U.S. that want to buy precatorios, right? But but this is a great example of how tokenization of real-world assets opens the door for people that weren't in that position. So we've been tokenizing assets and putting them on Mercado Bitcoin and Foxbit. Uh, the regulatory framework in Brazil became a little bit fuzzy these past few months uh, for people not familiar with what's happening. The CVM um, came out with this uh, mention or, or suggestion that... Um, Potentially, these what were considered not securities are now securities, but we've been getting been getting very positive feedback from CVM on how to do it properly. So we'll continue doing that. Uh, we do short-term debts, uh, we do uh, government bonds, and we we have a thesis of doing uh, institutional agricultural products, which is on the rollouts for Q1 of next year. But we we're doing uh, carbon credits with the state of Rio and the state of Acre uh, for the Bolsa Verde, which is already something that it's on the news. Uh, it's a tokenized exchange of of a government carbon credits uh, that are going to be sold for both institutional players and uh, retail investors, um, people that are interested. Please Google Bolsa Verde, Rio de Janeiro, and you see it. Nice. Do you guys see any opportunity already on uh, on tokenizing energy in itself, trading it, um, and things like that? I ask that because, well, Brazil is one of the biggest renewable energy producers in the world. Um, there is a trend coming on uh, green hydrogen, and Brazil is set up to be one of the biggest players in the world as well. And we have a big demand for solar and wind um, powers So and, and constru plant constructions. So I've seen some things going on on that, on that um, se segment of the, the industry. So have you guys been looking into that? Uh, does that, is that into the environmental assets as well? Um, well, just as an example, I heard someone working on a FIDIC for um, solar panels that have 25 years of usage and so on. And that did seem like a good investment. So like uh, it's a, well, could be tokenized as well and so on. Even there is, well, we can get into that, but there is projects on energy web tokens and things like that. Yeah, well, our thesis is that the best tokenization of energy is Bitcoin. So, Agreed. you know, for people that, that might be like a little bit puzzled by that statement is, if you produce energy, uh, either you sell it or you lose it, right? You can't really store energy. Uh, one of our, the, this, this, is, this is an open mic. Uh, used to say we could store wind, but I haven't seen yeah. that yet, right? Uh, so you can't really, it, it's prohibitive for you to store energy in a battery because the batteries are so expensive. We haven't gotten there yet. Uh, one of our thesis of investment is that Bitcoin is potentially one of the best places for you to store energy because this, the energy you're not selling, you're transforming it in Bitcoin. And if you're listening to this podcast, you probably believe that Bitcoin is going to continuously appreciate in the, in the horizon, right? Um, so we've been looking at uh, Bitcoin mining in LATAM uh, from an institutional perspective. Uh, that's it's always, you know, where we think that there's more alpha. Um, and we foresee that probably LATAM is going to become the next big crypto mining hub. Because if, if you're following what's happening in the Biden administration, they're going to tax people here 
that are that are, that are miners, uh, that are crypto miners, uh, pretty happy. So if that continues, we'll probably see what happened in China, where people left China, went to the U.S., and now the U.S. is going to become too expensive to mine. They'll probably flock down to Latin America. Yeah, that's going to be an interesting, interesting um, trend to observe here in the coming years, especially uh, kind of depending what happens in the 2024 election. I think I think everyone in crypto is sort of glued to that election, you know, just primarily from the kind of the SEC, like what's going to happen to Gary Gensler uh, perspective. But I think also on the mining perspective, um, you know, obviously having, you know, we have an administration right now that's sort of hostile to crypto seemingly across every uh, in every manner, essentially. Um, and if, if these, if these, if it's signaled effective, I mean, they're effectively signaling that like these businesses aren't welcome here, right? If, if you're issuing coins, selling coins, mining coins, like you're not really welcome here. Right. And yeah. I think, choke point, and, choke point, uh, 2.0. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, Nick Carter and other people have done a great job sort of unearthing and exposing just kind of what's going on there. And it's, it's, it's frightening really. It, it is. And, um, and I, 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 I agree with you in the sense that I don't think that even, even if, even if maybe like, okay, this 30% tax, it doesn't actually like materialize, which, which, you know, it may or may not. Um, it, it's still sort of sending a signal that like, okay, this is not like a type of place. Like we don't want you here basically. <laughs> it's yeah. sort of the message that's being sent. Right. <laughs> For sure. um, and if we don't get you a 30% tax this time, we'll get you next time kind of thing. Right. So, um, so I, I definitely, I, I definitely see you know when you look at what's happening in paraguay and and some with some i mean there's there's some i mean there's some some conflicts there that bitcoin mining has has, has caused as well and in argentina and stuff but uh if you're just looking at just the sheer kind of price of energy and you know if, i've always said if these if these bitcoin miners can just come into these towns and at least do something to try to be like good corporate citizens. Don't just be like this sketchy facility behind a barbed wire fence. That's using up all the town's energy. Like try to like, you know, you know, buy new like soccer unit football uniforms for the kids or something, or do something that like, you know, makes people like you <laughs> thinking you can survive fairly easily. Um, but yeah, I, I am, I am interested to see kind of what, what happens on the, on, is there going to be another kind of like mass migration of, of Bitcoin kind of hash rate to, to new regions? Um, you know, went from China to the U S and now U S is sort of saying, we don't want you here. Uh, where does it go now? Right. Is it going to go to Russia? Um, you know, maybe, but that's seems kind of dicey. Uh, where else is it going to go? Like, where do you have, where do you have cheap enough, you know, hydropower or, or whatever to be able to, to, to power these types of operations? Yeah, um, all it takes is Latam, right? Yeah, it's like I, I think crypto and in general and digital assets are perfect suited uh, asset class for Latin America, right? You have the infrastructure that you mentioned very wisely, Aaron, about like hydro plants and probably um, that that's one. Um, you you have the regulatory friendly environment. You have tons of gas in Latin America that poses a more Bitcoin green mining operation. Um, now, I think I think it's upcoming this year or early next year where Paraguay stops paying Brazil for the amortization of uh, Itaipu, uh, which is the largest dam in the region. So they're going to have an excess of energy. What are they going to do with it? Yeah, yeah, I think that that's, that'll be an interesting trend to watch here. Uh, Maybe kind of pivoting back to the um, the asset tokenization side of things here, I would love to get your thoughts on, you know, capital formation using security tokens, and kind of pivoting back to what we were we were discussing earlier at the very onset of the show, just about how the idea of security tokens kind of came on as almost a response to, uh, you know, a regulated response to ICOs or whatever. Um, and I'm just kind of curious as to like how would you you're looking at the world of just asset tokens in general? It, it seems to me that you have like kind of two buckets essentially. You have just kind of tokenizing things that that uh, kind of products that already exist in some form, like a like a receivable note or a carbon credit, and you're just kind of you're you're basically just kind of registering that on a blockchain. And then you have actual sort of you know capital formation type of tokens where it's like okay, I'm a company, but instead of 
doing an ICO or uh, which I mean, these don't really exist anymore, but like instead of just, you know, doing ICO or instead of, of trying to just do like a straight venture capital play, I, I'm going to, um, I'm going to do a, a security token offering. Like what, like if you're talking to a founder, like what would you kind of like, like what would be the, who would be the right type of person or company to try to raise capital through a, a security token offering at, at this point in time, um, whether it be either in the U S or in Brazil, uh, like what would be kind of the, you know, the right type of company to, to potentially do that? I think that it's open to any company, right? I'm a, I'm a big believer that if you, uh, if you have a right, a right proposition, a unique selling proposition, then you're, you're suited for, for doing great. Uh, if you have a fantastic pizzeria around your block and you want to raise in Brazil, you can raise up to five million reais uh, through crowdfunding, right? Which is which is the way that now you can issue a security token. Um, in the U.S., that's also uh, five million bucks. And you, if you're doing it in the U.S., you can go up to seventy-five million bucks every year, which is which is a, a good amount of money. Um, so I think capital formation there, in general, it allows people to raise money through a more uh, less friction way way of raising money from the crowds, uh, and that's one of the benefit, the huge benefits of issuing uh, a tokenized um, asset class. One one of the things that I find that it kind of gets people griddled uh, on on why a security tokens not working or not reaching their potential is because you don't have um, secondary liquidity, right? So you buy that asset, either you sit on that asset and you wait for it to mature and get a payout, or there isn't really a secondary market for it. But I think that's changing. One of the things that we are very prone in, in, in our team is to do market making for our own issuances. So we, if we bought the asset and we're issuing the asset, it is in our benefit to market make it, right? Because if I sell you the asset for 100 reais and for some reason you need liquidity and you're willing to sell it back for me for 90 reais, I, I'm willing to do that every day, all day, because I know that the asset I bought is a, is a good asset, right? Um, so I think that that's something we're evolving as a whole industry to have secondary liquidity uh, for, for security tokens. And as the market becomes bigger, I think you're going to see more and more of those. Uh, Maybe it's kind of piggybacking off on that. Um, Like what would you say in addition to kind of the secondary market kind of infrastructure, um, like what would you say is the biggest, maybe like missing piece of infrastructure um, to really making this 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 whole sort of economy uh, really blossom, um, is it maybe like the issuance platforms? Is it is it like you know secondary trading infrastructure like you mentioned? Um, is it is it like uh, a bit more like regulatory clarity on some things? Um, so no, I I know that a lot of these guys you know thinking of like securitize you know some of these companies that popped up in like 2017 18 with trying to do you know security token issuances and they've it seems like it was kind of one of these things where, okay, they have like the right idea, but the wrong time, you know, yeah. uh, maybe a little too early, maybe. Um, but they were like, they're onto something, but just the market wasn't there for it. Um, and then even, um, you know, there's a few of these other kind of, I think like Harbor was another one of these security token issuance mm-hmm. platforms from 2018. And they, I think they Republic. got, yep. I think, uh, yeah, Republic. Yeah. I think there, there's a number of these things that kind of popped up and then you just kind of never heard from them again. Uh, either they, I think Securitize pivoted to doing some kind of like KYC thing. KYC is a service. And I think Harbor got acquired by maybe BitGo, I think, or something. Yeah. Um, but yeah, these things, you kind of, you, they made a big splash. Then you kind of just, you never heard of them again. Um, so just kind of get your, like, at least get your thoughts on like, what's the, what's the infrastructure that, that's, um, that we're kind of missing right now to really, um, you know, really reach the potential of this, of this economy. Yeah, no, I think that first one is a regulatory clearance, right? Or, or like just you could do this and here's how you do it. Uh, and the U.S. is very clear, but from a from a on paper point of view, um, we're we're speaking with some executives 
that are in that space here in the U.S. And they were saying, well, now it's a little bit challenging with this uh, <laughs> Operation Choke Point 2.0 to get a Reggae Plus approved, uh, which for those not familiar, Reggae Plus is a, is a framework in the U.S. that allows you to raise up to $75 million on an annual basis for a tokenized um, issuance, right? You can issue a token and sell it to anyone uh, market it online and and raise up to $75 million uh, regulated under the, S, the, the American SEC. Um, so you're seeing a little bit of friction on the regulatory framework. And that's one of the things that for me as a, as a market participant, I'm so excited about Brazil because Brazil, it's kind of like clear and forward, right? We're not going backwards like we're going in the US uh, where we have a clear regulatory framework that it's not being applied or, or getting passed through. So Brazil, in my opinion, is going to explode in that environment. Um, and you mentioned something, right? What, what is necessary for adoption? Um, things that are happening, like what, what was announced today, where you now have companies like EKE or Guide that are now going to offer digital assets or tokenized assets to their wide uh, pool of clients, I think that's gonna be a game changer. Because two things, and we all know this because we're deep in the space, right? Crypto is challenging from, from a from a operational point of view. You need to know what you're doing. If you make a mistake, there's no one to call. You know, it's, it's not friendly. You can't get like someone who's not very tech savvy into like, oh yeah, you know, wire, why are a hundred thousand reais here in crypto? Person will like have a meltdown, right? Because you, you need to copy the right keys and you need to know your passwords, and it's just challenging. But when you have these companies doing the interface, uh, when you have banks like New Bank uh, offering crypto on their platform, when you have banks like Inter looking at offering crypto on their platform. Uh, when you have banks like Bradesco and Itaú and BTG all looking at how to bring crypto to their clients, I think that we're gonna we're gonna see a boom uh, of digital assets in Brazil. And essentially, people really don't care like what is the technology behind it. They want to know that they bought a bond that's gonna yield thirty percent annually, and and they're they like it, right? And, and Danielle Kukeri from Liqui did a great job putting that platform together. Um, fantastic job, you know, tokens being being uh, pay, paying out 2 to 3% monthly. And people like that. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting kind of, uh, maybe to kind of close out here, it's interesting maybe vision for, uh, you know, just kind of thinking, you know, two, three years forward here where, you know, on my, if I'm using my new bank app, I can, I can go to the crypto app. I can put, you know, hundred hey ice into like Bitcoin or Ethereum. I can put hundred hey ice into, you know, uh, like, uh, you know, uh, you know, my favorite, like sort of a football team or whatever, like they've, you know, against their, you know, I'm basically investing in like the future earnings of a player or something. Um, I'm putting 100 hey ice into um, you know some some local government debt. Uh, I'm putting 100 hey ice into you know a receivable or you know tokenized you know sort of soy uh, type of product. Um, these are all things I can just do like just just clicking on my you know my new bank app, right? It's I don't need any kind of fancy brokerage or any kind of uh, fancy like fund manager or to, to sort of you know shepherd me through the whole process. It's all just kind of a click of a button on an app. Um, I mean, I think that's that's really exciting. I think that really, you know, speaks to some of the democratization elements um, that we, we were talking about earlier. Um, so I'm really excited to see how this all, all transpires. And um, yeah, I'm excited to see how, um, you know, Brazil in particular um, really, really takes this mantle and runs with it. Um, Antonio, any final thoughts from you? Well, just, uh, just piggybacking on Brazil, uh, enjoying this opportunity because it's a personal thesis of mine that uh, we have everything ready, as Alex said. I mean, not everything ready, but we have a match made in heaven, maybe where all use cases for crypto apply in LATAM. 
and especially in Brazil, either speculation or government protection or inflation protection. Um, it just makes sense. So, um, well, I just really hope we can uh, tokenize as many things as we can, that regulation continues to give us the guidance to, to go forward. And uh, we continue to have uh, good people like Alex building on, on the market and giving access to people on this new investment products. Amazing. Uh, well, Alex, thanks so much for your time. Um, how can people uh, get in touch with you? Uh, easiest is through LinkedIn. If you, if, there's a bunch of Alex Nascimentos on LinkedIn. If you're in the Brazil, but if you do Alex Nascimento UCLA, I'm, I'm the black and white picture there. It would be a pleasure to have a chat uh, about what you're working on or about anything about crypto. And thank you, Aaron and, and Antonio. You know, the, the work you've been doing around Brazil Crypto Report is uh, is phenomenal. I, I really think it's really high quality, or else I wouldn't be sharing it with uh, with the, some of the uh, people that are most respected in the industry that are looking at Brazil because, um, it, you know, they're like, oh, Alex, you're Brazilian. You know about this. Like, what should I read? I'm like, you should read Brazil Crypto Report. <laughs> Appreciate the endorsement. I'll, maybe I'll have, to, I'll have to put a little banner, like endorsed by Alex Nascimento. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right? like, it must be good. <laughs> Alex recommends it, right? So no, appreciate the endorsement. Uh, appreciate the you know and the and the compliments. So well, great. Thanks so much, Alex. Thanks so much, Antonio. And thanks everyone for listening. And uh, we will catch you next time. Obrigado, everyone, and thanks for listening. Please make sure you subscribe to the Brazil Crypto Report newsletter on Substack if you haven't already. And please do give the show a five star rating on your podcast app if you enjoyed this content. We'll be back soon with another great guest.